This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... And it's clearly shown that uh, with a clear understanding between our two sides, there is nothing that cannot be achieved. That's uh, Tigray rebel group spokesman Getacho Radda on latest steps in the Tigray peace process. Details coming up. Also, we look at why there have been several coups in Africa this year. We'll hear about the violence in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And the world mourns the king of soccer. We'll have these stories and more on African news tonight. We start with our top story. Over the past 18 months, there have been seven coups or coup attempts in African nations. In Burkina Faso, Chad, Guinea, Mali, and Sudan, military leaders succeeded in seizing power. In Niger and recently in Guinea-Bissau, they failed. Kwaku Nuama is Professor of International Politics at American University here in Washington, D.C. I first asked him why coups are happening more frequently and could these pose a problem for fledgling democracies across the continent? Coups happen because the basic needs of the people are not being met and also because the laws and norms that regulate how we change bad performing uh, government are not well established in some societies. And so in those societies, permission structures emerge that allow the military to take advantage and remove uh, the leader uh, supposedly on behalf of the people. So let's start uh, with Mali and Burkina Faso, for instance. Terror affiliates driving instability in these African countries. In Mali's case, of course, you have the Tuareg problem in the north. Uh, it's um, The government has been trying to deal with it. But the military coming in and saying the elected government are not doing a good job. They should step aside and we're coming. That's not a solution. I think it actually can make the problem worse because some of those problems require solutions beyond what the military can provide. Sometimes it's dialogue. Sometimes it's bringing in mediators. And the military cannot just reduce all of this to just force. In Burkina Faso, which is also trending that way, we see the removal of an entrenched dictator. Now, I'm not saying that the problem is not there, but we've seen cases where Nigeria, for example, has dealt with domestic terrorism without a coup. In country like Guinea, Last year's successful coup came after President Alpha Conde changed the constitution and mounted a power grab that gave him a third term in office. Uh, that also mirrors Burkina because we saw Blaise Campari trying to do the same thing, you know, led to all kinds of protests. So situations where elected leaders violate the constitution and try to attain their rule beyond what is allowed. Those are soft civilian coups as well. And what they do is that they create opportunity structures for the military to come in, saying that you don't respect the constitution. We don't think that you are going to do good on your own. And in Chad, Professor, the military led a covert coup, installing the son of President uh, Idris Dabi, himself a military commander, and calling it a transition. Exactly. So that's another violation of the pro-democracy norms. You shouldn't have these secessions. You know, you want dictator goes and then his son takes over. We have too many of those in Africa. And 
the continent doesn't speak out against those. So when you do that, you are saying to the rest of the people, you don't matter. In the case you're talking about, the military is dominated by the former president's ethnic group. And so for them, making sure that the secession passes through is very important because it's how they all benefit. And Professor, lastly, let's talk about uh, outside intervention related to coup d'etats in Africa, primarily Russia and China, to a lesser extent, maybe Turkey and the Gulf states like Qatar. Broadly speaking, these nations do not necessarily foment coups, but they do take advantage of instability. Yes. When outsiders engage with Africans, they are mostly interested in promoting their own interests. And, you know, that's how it was. We've seen case after case after case of African states unable to manage their own security and bringing in outsiders to help them. In the part of the places where we're looking at, particularly in the Sahel, we've seen France withdrawing and being replaced by uh, Russia, for example, uh, but we've seen Turkey. Basically, when outsiders come in, if governments can rely on outsiders to help them take and keep power, then those governments are less responsive to the needs of their people. So you have a social contract. The social contract between the people and the government. In these particular cases, the foreign backer inserts themselves in the social contract, usually in the position of the principal, and the government then becomes a client of intervening foreigner. And so the government, you know, doesn't care too much about what the people in the country want. They care about how they're going to satisfy the needs and interests of the foreign backer. And as long as that foreign backer helps them stay in power, they don't care. And eventually, it's the people that suffer because they cut all kinds of deals that hurt us in the long run. So this is, this is the problem. That was Kwaku Nuama, a professor of international politics at American University. He spoke with me from Washington, D.C. Eritrean troops are reported to be withdrawing from Ethiopia's Tigray region. Ethiopian federal and Tigray officials have been stepping up efforts to enforce a truce in Tigray, which includes the withdrawal of foreign forces. Tigrayan officials and some political analysts say a lasting peace is only possible if Eritrean troops leave. Mohamed Yusuf reports from BOA's African News Center in Nairobi. Witnesses in the towns of Agzum and Shire in Ethiopia's Tigray region, say some Eritrean forces withdrew Friday. It is unclear when the Eritrean troops will completely withdraw to their borders. The withdrawal may ease fears of the Tigray rubber group, which has accused the forces of killing civilians and blocking aid. The presence of Eritrean forces is seen as an obstacle to the enforcement of the peace agreement signed in South Africa in November, between Ethiopia's federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Mulu Bayene is a Tigrayan living in Norway. This week he connected with his mother and other relatives in the Tigray region after the restoration of telecommunication services. He says Eritrean forces need to leave the region. The fact that they have begun, reportedly begun, leaving uh, some parts of Tigray is a welcome development, obviously. And most importantly... It needs to be followed through from all other towns too, towns and, and villages of Tigray too. 
Bene spoke to relatives in Adwa town Friday. He says eruption forces, militias and government forces are in charge of the town, where abysses against the population continue. There are many types of military people around the town. People largely do not know who has what kind of mandate because the Eritreans seem to be uh, in town and around the vicinities of the town. Federal police forces are also holding some pockets of the town. And there are other military people from uh, the Amhara region, it, it appears, that come and go from time to time. Uh, sometimes they say they arrest people, killings are reported from time to time. Ethiopian federal forces and Eritrean forces captured Adoa in October after the Tigray rebel group suffered losses and withdrew. A week later, the warring factions met in South Africa and agreed to end hostilities, attend to the population's humanitarian needs and restore services in the region. This week, the groups agreed to form a joint monitoring team to oversee the ceasefire and follow up on the peace deal's implementation. Tigray rebel group spokesman Getachew Reda says government forces were taking positions previously occupied by their troops. We have done uh, every effort on our part to make sure that uh, all the heavy weapons uh, that we have at our disposal are there uh, for, the inter- for, for the monitors to, to, to monitor. Of course, the battalion that is res- that's responsible uh, has already moved uh, into the position and it clearly showed that uh, with a clear understanding between our two sides, there is nothing that cannot be achieved. Tigray regional leaders have expressed concerns about the presence of foreign forces and other militia groups. The two-year conflict has killed hundreds of thousands of people and displaced millions. The peace agreement has brought some normalcy to Tigray families that can now reconnect as the region comes out of a long stretch of isolation from the rest of the country. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. You're listening to African News Tonight, live on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note, we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Area residents tell the French news agency AFP there were heavy clashes between rival militias on Thursday in the eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The fighting took place in the Tongo area of the Rotshuru territory in North Kivu province. The Tutsi-led M23 rebels fought members of the militia coalition called the CMC FDP or Coalition or of Movements for Change and People's Defense Forces. Over months of fighting in the eastern DRC, scores of civilians have been killed. A coming United Nations report details the violence. It is based on interviews with more than 200 sources and in-person visits to Congo's North Kivu province where the M23 controlled territory. Associated Press West Africa correspondent Sam Mednick, who was in the eastern DRC in September, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the conflict has been percolating for decades. 
the people I spoke to just said that the situation was was dire, that it was getting worse by the day that they were concerned at that point of continuing attacks between M23 rebels and a coalition of self-defense groups, as well as the government. And they were worried that the fighting was going to inch closer to Goma, which is the the main town in in North Kivu province. Uh, a few weeks after I left, M23 did take a major town, Rutshuru Center. Uh, it also, after that, a lot of uh, displaced people who had recently returned from Uganda and had just recently set up in this displacement site, that was completely destroyed and all those people left as well. So the situation has continued to get worse uh, as the months and the, as the weeks have gone on. Now, the United Nations has said, too, that they have evidence that there's been more rapes and abductions. What has the U.N. said about that exactly? And and have you kind of corroborated that with what you found there? The the U.N. just put out that their panel of experts put out a report and some of it, the part about M23 was based on more than 230 interviews. Uh, also, they said that they took trips to the area, to Rutshuru territory, to Goma, and they had documentary evidence, videos, photos, uh, saying that there's rapes, abductions, uh, some summarily executions of civilians. And the people I spoke to, uh, a lot of them corroborated much of that, saying that uh, the rebels would go into cities and just indiscriminately shoot people. They felt like if they were living under M23, they had very limited freedom of movement. They were taxed if they wanted to access their farms, about $5. And they, they just said that they were living in fear. Why is this happening right now in this part of Congo? What, what are they fighting over, these different rebel groups? There have been fighting with more than 120 rebel groups for for years and years. So this has been going on in Eastern Congo for, for a long time. M23 resurfaced late last year in November. They almost took, they did take the capital Goma about 10 years ago and they were pushed back, but they've been largely dormant since about November, December 2021. It's unclear exactly what they want. I have spoken to them and they have said that they want dialogue with the government and that they want peace. Uh, they also were upset that the government is wasn't abiding by a peace agreement from years ago, from 2009. But it's, it's unclear at this point exactly what they want. They just keep saying that they want dialogue with the government, that they're not necessarily getting that. And they accuse the government of attacking their people and attacking innocent uh, civilians as well, according to what they say. A lot of times you, you hear about this kind of thing happening with unrest and continued conflicts when there isn't a strong government. Is, is that the situation in Congo? The government has struggled to stem the violence in the East for for years. And President Felix Chesuketi, he this was one of the things that he said he was going to to fix when he came to office. And he has pushed for and convened a a regional force made up of different countries, Kenya, Uganda, uh, South Sudan. And they are now being deployed to eastern eastern Congo to try and stem the violence, not just M23, but you have uh, ADF, which is alleged to be associated with uh, the Islamic State. You have other armed groups in the area. So he's trying to, to, to fix this problem, um, but it's, it's extremely hard. And a lot of the civilians I spoke to when they were there said they don't necessarily want all of these forces from different countries coming in there because there's already you have the UN mission and you already had Ugandan forces in there. You've had forces in there for years and they have said that it really hasn't made much of a difference. That's Associated uh, Press West Africa correspondent Sam Mednick. She was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam.
As we approach the end of year 2022, VOA wants to give you, our loyal listeners, the opportunity to wish your loved ones a happy new year. Call us on our WhatsApp number 202-258-3076. Leave a brief message and listen for it right here on VOA. The number again is 202-258-3076. Let VOA help you bring cheers and blessings to friends and family by just calling 202-258-3076. A trial of 46 soldiers from Ivory Coast continued in a court of appeals in Mali today. The trial opened Thursday in the capital Bamako in the run-up to the January 1st deadline set by the Economic Community of West African States to either release the troops or face sanctions. The French news agency AFP says yesterday's hearings were held behind closed doors and under heavy security. The military government in Bamako, who says the troops are mercenaries, arrested the soldiers in July as they arrived at the airport to back up a German contingent of UN peacekeepers. AFP says the session is not open to the public, but the international community, Committee of the Red Cross, is attending as observers. An Ivorian delegation that flew to Mali for talks on the crisis last week said the issue is on the way to being resolved. Brazilian football legend Pele has died at the age of 82 after suffering cancer and cardiac problems during the past year. Over his legendary career, Pele led his national team to an unprecedented three World Cup titles and became known as one of the sport's greatest players. VOA's Robert Rafael has more on the life of the international icon. The man who would become known simply as Pele dazzled fans on the World Cup stage for Brazil and in club games and international tours with his team, the Santos Football Club, before generating enthusiasm for the game in the United States, joining the New York Cosmos at the end of his career. He was born Edson Arantes do Nascimento on October 23, 1940. As a child, he gained acclaim for his soccer skills and signed with Santos at the age of 15. By 16, Pele was part of Brazil's national team, and in 1958, he made his World Cup debut at age 17. He is the youngest player to ever score in the Men's World Cup, ending up with six goals in the tournament in Sweden. Pele's two goals in the final match helped Brazil capture the 1958 title, and he led his team to two more World Cup titles in 1962 and 1970. With an international career that included 77 goals in 92 official matches, Pele was named FIFA's co-player of the 20th century, along with Argentina's Diego Maradona. In 1975, Pele joined the New York Cosmos of the North American Soccer League and played three seasons there. In 2015, Pele reflected on his life at the top of the game. I think the secret to success is 
to respect people, no? to be prepared always, and then never, never think you are the best. Thursday, France star Kylian Mbappe said that Pele's legacy will never be forgotten. And Pele's daughter, Kelly Nascimento, remembered her father, writing on Instagram in Portuguese, quote, Everything we are is because of you. We love you infinitely. Rest in peace. Robert Raffel, VOA News, Washington. A judge in Botswana has ordered the arrest on site of ex-president Ian Kama for the possession of illegal firearms, a charge that could lead to up to 10 years in prison. He's also facing charges of money laundering and handling stolen property. The international and regional media say the 69-year-old Kama is charged along with the heads of intelligence and police services. The court order follows his failure to appear in court earlier this year. The former leader is suspected of being in South Africa. The Kama family says he would consider an extradition request to expose what they call lies and fabrications by current president Mokwitsi Masisi, with whom Kama has a tense relationship. Kama says Masisi sees him as an impediment to his re-election and wishes to do him harm, an allegation the administration denies. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyus Wuhib in Washington. For all... Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States welcomes the recent announcement by Sudanese parties of an initial political framework agreement. At a Security Council briefing on Sudan and South Sudan, John Kelly, political counselor at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, said, This is an essential first step toward reestablishing Sudan's democratic transition. There is now a credible path to a final agreement that would take Sudan out of its current political crisis. In October 2021, Sudan's military led by General Abdel Fattah Burhan, overthrew a civilian-led transitional government, derailing Sudan's nascent transition to democracy after decades of dictatorship. Massive protests followed and were met with violence, and economic conditions in the country worsened. In July, General Burhan announced that the military was willing to hand power back to civilians. A broad range of Sudanese stakeholders signed the December 5th framework agreement. Political Councillor Kelly commended their efforts and their plans for an additional phase of continued dialogue on key issues. He urged all Sudanese actors to engage in dialogue in good faith and to establish a civilian-led transitional government as soon as possible. On December 7th, the United States announced an expansion of the current visa restriction policy to cover any current or former Sudanese officials or other individuals who attempt to undermine or delay democratic progress in Sudan, including through suppressing human rights and fundamental freedoms. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who welcomed the initial political framework agreement, said in a statement that the U.S. action expands the department's tools to support Sudan's democratic transition and reflects our continued resolve to support the people of Sudan in their manifest desire for a responsive and responsible civilian-led government. 
we once again call on Sudan's military leaders to cede power to civilians, respect human rights, and end violence against protesters, declared Secretary Blinken. He urged representatives of Sudan's civilian leaders to negotiate in good faith and place the national interest above personal political ambitions. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Yo!